Hello, this is Bella for On Reading. Our reasons for reading are as varied as our personalities. The On Reading podcast talks to people about the books they've loved in their life and the reasons why. Hello and welcome to the On Reading podcast, where my guest today, talking about his life in books, is the award-winning author and publisher, Simon Mason. Hello. So, Simon, you work in the publishing industry and you are also a published author. You have written three books for adults and seven books for children. Another book you've written is The Rough Guide to Classic Novels, which in itself must have been the most enormous amount of reading. Uh, it was an enormous amount of reading, that's right. Um, it came about because a friend of mine who was at Rough Guides commissioned me to do it. And the brief was to read and then write about, uh, in the way of recommendations, at least 200 classic novels, which was an average of about two a week for two and a half years. It made me go back to a lot of books I'd read already, and it made me extend my reading into new areas that I didn't know about. The brief was to read from uh, all novels published since the time of Don Quixote in any culture and any language. So I was reading (laughs) novels from Iceland and Mexico and... uh, and Australia and everywhere. And I, I had to choose them to begin with. And, and then I had to read about them and then I had to write about them. And both those things actually were important, the reading and the writing. Um, and I, I became very interested in, in the way in which I, I would have to try to organise my thoughts about a book because that wasn't a part of how I usually read. And I had to end up with a piece no more than 300 words, which somehow captured the flavour of the novel and so when I was reading it I, I had that issue in mind. How, did you read lots of books and then decide those I, I'm not going to put in and those I am or did you select, make your selection from the beginning? I, I was very methodical, I am quite methodical, uh, I made a list of about 750 novels and then I, I shared that with the people at Penguin uh, Rough Guide. I had an idea of a core of novels. You, you can't do that book, um, The Rough Guide, without including War and Peace, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or, or Moby Dick, and so on. And I certainly had a list of, in my head, classic authors who needed to be represented. It, it was, though, a, a pleasure-giving process, um, and not least because the brief for The Rough Guide was, we're not interested in worthy books, we're not interested in books that might appear on reading lists. The point of this book isn't to give plot summaries so that people don't have to read the books. The point is to recommend classics which you think, Simon, are pleasure-giving novels. Being, I mean, you are a huge reader, you always have been. Um, how, how would you describe yourself as a reader? What has reading meant to you? Looking round, I can see the number of books and the beautiful way they're kept as well. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fetishist. <laughs> I would describe myself as a Catholic reader, not quite indiscriminate, but wide-ranging, because I tend to follow my nose. Mm. What I read mostly of these days is, is prose fiction, but within that area, I, I, I like to read whatever I want to, so I range quite widely. In terms of the sort of type of reader uh, I am, I would, I would describe myself as an immerser rather than a critic. Um, and I've just invented those categories. <laughs> but I notice that some readers, and I admire them very much, read at a critical distance from the book. Um, and 
I think my natural reading style is to be much less critical and to immerse myself in the book. It's very rare that I would say, I'm frustrated with this book, this book doesn't speak to me. I just read a, a, a book by V.S. Naipaul on, on writers that have meant a lot to him, and he very frequently says, I don't like Graham Greene, he doesn't speak to me, he makes no attempt to reach me as a reader. I would never have that response. If a book doesn't reach me, I, I assume it's because I'm just not on the wavelength mm -hmm. of that book. I'm aware of being drawn to um, oddity and strangeness and the peripheral and the marginal. So I, I, I quite like discovering obscure writers or obscure books by well-known writers. I, I would say I, I, when I follow my nose, it's about discovering authors and their books. And so I might discover an author, as I have done in the past, say, uh, with um, uh, someone like Nabokov. First of all, I read his short stories, and then I read uh, the sort of the minor works from his early Russian phase, and then I read things like his collected essays. It was about three years before I, I dared embark on L Lolita, all the time being aware that, of course, Lolita was one of the great books. Mm. And I don't know why I have this this habit, but I, as I say, it's, it's something to do with liking the marginal and the peripheral, and I think that's something to do with intimacy. Those smaller, minor books are somehow less public, mm -hmm. and my relationship with them is somehow more intimate. And so what was it like when you did read Lolita? How did you find it? <laughs> I mean, was it a massive disappointment? Um, I liked it a lot, and it, I think it's a great novel. Well, it's a disturbing novel, isn't it? Pro mm. Problematic in lots of ways. I think I, I, I recognised it as a great book, and I, I, I could see why it was celebrated within his oeuvre. But I'm not sure I felt the same sense of excited discovery with it as I had when I read something like The Eye, which is one of his mm. early Russian novels that I think at the time wasn't in print. I picked it up in a second-hand bookshop. There was something then, as I say, more intimate, and maybe that's something to do with it being more secretive. Um, the, I imagine it's between me and the author. Just go, going back to your childhood, do you mm. remember the first books you were reading on your own uh, where you realised that this is something you can do for, for yourself, by yourself, independently? I do remember sitting in the back seat of my parents' car reading and announcing to them that I had finished the book, and it was, in fact, the first book I had read on my own all the way through. It was Noddy by Enid Blyton, <laughs> if I remember. And I remember the, <laughs> the ludicrous sense of pride. I was very aware it was the first book I'd, I'd read. So your parents weren't voracious readers like you? Um, no. I mean, they, they, they were readers, but they hadn't grown up with books. I mean, neither of my parents had gone to university. My father uh, was attracted to really big, difficult books like Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn. So when I was young, they were sort of, you know, out of bounds, not out of bounds, but out of reach. Mm. Uh, my mother was a sex therapist and um, she had textbooks, which she was very happy for me to read. But they were, they were <laughs> like, it's like, just going off on a tangent and perhaps unwelcome to certain <laughs> listeners. But... Um, I remember reading The Joy of Sex when I was about um, 12. And um, you, uh, do you know that book? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> it had a plate section in it of, of illustrations. And some of the pages had fallen out, cre cre creating bizarre, impossible <laughs> spreads of 
three-legged men and, and, and two-headed women, um, which bewildered me, age 11. It wasn't a house full of books that I felt I could read. So what I was reading was, was mine. I'd instigated it. Mm. I'd got the books from the library. I'd asked my parents to, to buy them, or they'd bought them specifically f for me. So I think I had a great sense of, as it were, ownership in the reading process. Were you very bookish? Were you always in a corner with a book and could never be dragged outside? Or no, no, I wasn't. Balanced? I wasn't. It was. It was much more balanced. And to be honest, if 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 you'd have asked me, aged anywhere between sort of seven and thirteen, what I most wanted to do it was mm -hmm. go outside and kick a ball about. Right. It, it really wasn't to, to read. But but I was a very enthusiastic and a natural reader. I wouldn't have called myself bookish. I read for pleasure. The childhood pleasure of just entering another world is the most profound one mm. for me. And that has stuck all the way. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think so. I, I just did it for pleasure. Mm. And really, I just do it for pleasure now. Except I, I would say now, I do have a habit of systematising my reading. So um, tell us about this. Yeah, it's a shame, <laughs> shameful sort of thing. Um, in childhood reading, as in lots of things in childhood, um, reading was natural to me. Um, and then you hit puberty and you become self-conscious about all sorts of things. I think as I passed through puberty and, and got older, I was more self-conscious about the whole process. And I, I do remember thinking to myself, I've always loved reading. I don't want to stop reading. But now it's a, 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 I'm self-conscious about it. I need to... Um, make myself into a regular reader. I do need to keep up my reading. Later, after I'd graduated, I was, I was continuing to read quite a lot, and so I started to keep a record of all the books I read. That was the beginning of 1988, and I've continued to do that. Um, and it's, it's partly record-keeping, but then it has all these other side effects, some of which are just silly, I think, because I start to think to myself... Oh, I, I read 60 books last year. I want to read more than that this year. So it becomes a sort of a target or a name. Or putting it the other way around, I'm uncomfortable if I read fewer than 60 mm. books a year. So I've got to read five a month. So um, if, I'm not, if, if I've only read two and I'm getting towards the end of the month, it might make me choose slim books to read for the rest of the month to get through them quick. It's silly, isn't it? It's like a dog chasing its own tail. It's bewildering. Why do you do it? I don't know what it is. You'd have to ask my mother. <laughs> um, it's the reading of the Joe effect. Yeah, something in my childhood. When, when I read for the Rough Guide and did the Rough Guide, it introduced this whole new element, which is I could read about a book and then make notes about it when I'm reading it and think about it so that after I finish reading it, I could write about mm. it. So if I read, as I say, maybe 60 books a year, I might write about 30 or 40 of them. Do you go back and reread what you've written at a later date? Yeah. So, so, but this is partly to get more out of my reading. And I, I think, you know, I, I forget books. I'd like to remember them better and I'd like to think about them better. Mm. I'd like to appreciate them more. And if I'm going to write a piece after I've read a book, while I'm reading it, I'm paying it more attention, mm. I think. And then, for me, as a writer, the trick of trying to sum up a book, capture something about it, get a flavour, give a flavour of uh, a book in 300 words is a writing challenge. And I, I find it difficult, and I like that. Mm. And if I live to be 75, I, I've worked out I should have written a 1,000 pieces. Goodness. Yes. So. It's almost ludicrous. Tell me about your wall of fame. 
Wall of Fame, yeah. Okay, that's that's a, a an, an offshoot of this whole systematization. So, at the end of every year, I've created my list of books that I've read, and I look at that list and I I, I ask myself which authors have meant the most to me that year, and um, there's usually sort of three or four of them, and I I induct them into my into my personal hall of fame. And <laughs> it's like a confession, this. You've tempted me into this shameful confession. I, I, I photocopy um, pictures of them and cut them out and stick them in a montage on my wall so that I now have a montage of about 150 authors' faces uh, in my in my wall of fame, some of whom uh, are repeated a few yeah. times because they, they recur. I go back, I reread them, or I read more books by them at a later time and they appear again on my wall of fame. And the way you look after your books, I'm looking around your room and they have this what is it, plastic around them. Um, adapter roll is what it's called. Mm, yeah, I like books as a physical yeah. object. I, I like the appearance of them, I like the feel of them, you know, what people say, the smell of them, it's true. Mm. What I, I like most of all, is um, is getting my hands on an edition of the book as it was first published. It needn't be a first edition, but something that feels and looks like it did when it first came out. So you can see up there, I've got my Muriel Sparks. Mm. and uh, So they're nearly all second-hand, but they appear as they would have appeared to those first readers in the 50s and the right. 60s and the 70s. And I love the thrill of periodising a book. Publishers are really good in a way that music publishers are not good at all at refreshing the appearance of things. Mm. If you could still buy a CD of uh, The Beatles' Abbey Road, it would have exactly the same mm. picture on the front as it did when it first came out. Books are not like that. Every few years, the publisher changes the cover. So you buy Mural Spark now, it doesn't look anything like it did look at first. So I go back and I, I get the, 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 something close to the first appearance of the, of the book. And I love the way books fit into their historical context in that way. The artwork on the mm. cover and the style of lettering and so on. It says something about the book, mm. I think. And then I, I cover them, as you said, with this stuff called Adapter Roll, which I buy from the Book Protector Company, whose address is at Book Protector House. I ring them up and order a, another 80 metres of adapter. But I ring them up and the woman who answers the phone recognises my name now. Um, <laughs> and I, I put little plastic jackets on the paperbacks as well. So I do buy new books. So you can see that Elizabeth Taylor's there. Um, oh, yeah. There are 12 novels and I really liked the Virago reissues of them. So I, I bought them all in those, in those editions. So part of the aim of this podcast is to hear from you what the most significant books in your life have been up until now mm. and um, an interrogation really of why they've meant so much to you at that particular time in your life. So the first book you chose, mm. which takes us back to your childhood, is Island of Adventure series by Ina Blyton. Mm. So this is really the first uh, group of books um, that I remember being very excited by. Uh, there's the Island of Adventure, the Valley of Adventure, the Mountain of Adventure, mm. about seven of them altogether, and they involve uh, stories of the same group of four children. Typically, they find themselves in some location uh, where 
something is going on, criminal activity, espionage or something, and they, they get involved. And I went back to the island of adventure when, when my children were of an age to read it. I found it incredibly dull mm. and racist. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> oh, look at that man. He's got a terribly thick neck. He must be foreign. <laughs> but at, at the time, I was, I was deeply absorbed in the world she created. And, and in particular, the world of these four children. One of the boys, Philip, had a gift of um, relating to animals. He had a parrot called Kiki, but he could he could he could tame uh, any animal. In fact, in the Circus of Adventure, I think he tames a bear. Um, and I deeply wanted to be like Philip. I didn't think I was Philip. I, I wanted to be Philip-like. Mm. I used to, you know, hang around in country lanes hoping to meet an animal I might be able to tame to test myself. Um, I liked being in the company of Philip and, and the others. Looking back, they, they were completely unlike me. I mean, they, they were boarding school kids for a start. I didn't really know what boarding school was. But as I say, it didn't matter because I didn't really identify with them. I just wanted to be like them and I wanted to imagine myself in the same situation mm. as them. Would I have been so brave? Would I have been so resourceful? Your second choice, which mm. is The Lord of the Rings by yeah. Tolkien, did you read this quite soon after or was this something that you came to much later on? It was the first book that I thought of as quite a serious book that I also really loved. I must have read The Hobbit first and then Lord of the Rings and similarly I, I felt this was an imaginative world that I, I could be absorbed into. Uh, and I, I was talking to uh, Lynette. Uh, my wife about Lord of the Rings, and her experience was 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 very similar. And she put it in in this way: she said um, she was so excited by the world of Lord of the Rings that when she was called for her tea, she ate the tea as fast as she could because she was pretty sure that stuff was still going on in Lord of the Rings, and she was missing it. She had to get back as, as quickly as she could. And, and I, I I didn't put it like that to myself at the time, but. I think I had a similar sort of impression. I wanted to be in the world, immerse myself in the world. I, I think beyond that, what I remember most vividly is, uh, the, is are the opening sections of the book and, and uh, the, the scenes in the Shire with the Black Riders, and in particular the figure of Strider. Mm. Now, I was, I was totally taken with, with Strider. I wanted to be Strider. I wanted to be a nameless ranger, um, who no one knew really, a shadowy figure with, with extraordinary skills and knowledge. And when I discovered he was Aragorn, heir to some throne, I was bitterly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> seemed like a massive betrayal to me. But moment, moments in the story as well, in the adventure, I mean, Gandalf falling into darkness uh, in the mines of Moria, and, and, and countless other scenes I, I, I was utterly gripped by. Funnily enough, it's also the, the first book where I encountered literary criticism because knowing how I liked the book, one of my parents' friends bought me a, a book about Lord of the Rings. And I started to read it and I was absolutely appalled and disgusted. I remember they, there was something about chalices and how they were a, a symbol of female sexuality or something. I was just completely outraged that someone could write something so stupid. And it was mine. Yeah. And it was mine in, in a way that I, I, I felt 
I felt um, threatened somehow by someone coming in and giving different views mm. of, a, of a, a sort which didn't chime at all with my experience of, of being immersed in the book. And what about the author at this point? Was Were you interested in Tolkien and no. Ina Blyton? No, not at all. Didn't think about them. Couldn't care less. No. So when did that start, the interest in the author? Well, later, I guess. The next books I've chosen are poetry books, aren't they? And, um, and it's probably... It probably coincides with that, where I became interested in poetry and also, at the same time, in sort of writing myself. And what I was trying to write was poetry and therefore thinking of myself as a poet. So I was very interested in the figure of the poet. And my love of poetry was partly a love of the figure of the poet, who's actually, now I think about it, strider-like in the way that they're sort of maybe at the margins mm. of society and they're full of shadowy, mysterious knowledge um, maybe that's what I've always aspired to. Did you abandon fiction at that point? Or? Yes, I did, actually. And between the ages of 15 and about 25, I really didn't read very much apart from poetry. I mean, I, I, I studied literature, therefore I, I, you know, I, I read classic mm. novels and so on as part of the course. But for pleasure, it was all poetry. And it, it, when I was about 15... The first poet to make a big impression on me was Robert Browning, who we were studying at school. But it, it, it went much deeper than that with me. Um, and there was something, I keep coming back to this actually, privacy, intimacy. There was something about the poetry that spoke to me and, and me alone. It, it was like coming across a book of private spells and, and not understanding the spells, but feeling I wanted to learn the spells. And it's something to do with the uh, the, the music of the, the the poetry, the rhythm and the and the rhymes, and so on. With with Browning, it was also the dramatic monologues, the way in which he he um, put himself inside certain characters who were revealing themselves in the poems. And and then the the, the poet after Browning was was Dylan Thomas, and that came later. So. I think I was doing O-levels, so I must have been sort of 15, 16. And for about two years, I was really quite obsessed with the idea of Dylan Thomas. And, and it was partly him, as well as the poems. The poems I couldn't make head or tail of. Mm. But they were just breathtakingly beautiful to me, in a totally mysterious sort of way. The sound of them, and the sort of the strange, surreal images they conjured up in my mind. So again, it's, it's, it's in a sense privacy. I, even if I'd wanted to talk to someone about the poems, I wouldn't have known where to begin. I didn't know what I thought about them. And I might not have wanted anyone else to tell me what they thought about them. They were, they were my private world again, and I could sort of wander around in them. I mean, I, I think I was thought of as a bit odd, um, liking Dylan Thomas. And, and th another important thing, I think, was that he wasn't on the syllabus. I wasn't studying mm. him. No one else was reading him. He was, he was mine, somehow. I remember in a sixth form rock concert, um, when friends of mine were in bands and, and playing, I stood on stage and recited one of his poems as a warm-up act. I, I, I remember the, the looks of utter incredulity <laughs> and, and disgust. I came off the stage and the drama teacher laughed so much I thought he was going to vomit. <laughs> Obviously, you studied literature at Oxford yeah. University. Yeah, I really liked it. 
And looking back, I like it even more. But what the course did not offer was, was anyone living. <laughs> Everyone had to have died before 1960. And, and no one foreign. And Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino was really my, the, my first introduction to foreign fiction, foreign contemporary fiction. If I may, I'll tell a brief anecdote, because this is, this is how it came about. I was at Oxford, and um, there was this girl that I'd known in Sheffield called Lisa. I was sort of half in love with Lisa, and she went off to Norwich to UEA to study. One day she invited me to go and stay the weekend with her in Norwich, which was very exciting. So I, um, I, got, I got a bus and I went over to Norwich and I got another bus and, uh, and then a taxi. And I, Anyway, Friday evening, about 10 o'clock, I was outside her room in the halls of residence, University of East Anglia, with my bunch of flowers and I knocked on the door and, and no one answered. And after about ten minutes, a, a girl came out of the room next to her and said, are you looking for Lisa? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, she's gone home for the weekend. And so um, I booked a, a bed and breakfast place in Norwich <laughs> and um, I spent the night there and then went back to Oxford. And, and a week later, I got a package in the post, which was a card from Lisa saying, really sorry, I forgot <laughs> that you were meant to be coming. Here's a present. And it was a copy of um, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. And she was very cool, Lisa, which was one of the reasons I was so keen on her. She smoked and everything. It was great. <laughs> and I'd never heard of Calvino. I'd never heard of this book. It was utterly unlike anything I was reading on the, the literature course. And it hit me. It hit me with massive force because it was storytelling in a totally mm. different form. The voice was different, the structure was different. It went about everything in a different mm. way. It was a, a massive eye-opener. And, uh, and then Calvino became one of the most important authors to me. And this book in particular is probably the book I've returned to most frequently in my life. Mm. I read it most recently when I chose it for our reading group. Oh. It was a massive mistake. Everyone hated it. It's, it's, it's not plot-driven. That was one reason for dissatisfaction. I think the other reason, though, was this Anglo-Saxon, this book is trying to be too clever by half. So, Simon, your second-last book is mm. The Inheritors by William Golding. Right. Tell me why you chose this. Because it's a startling leap of the imagination. Um, it's a story of uh, set in the Stone Age of a Neanderthal family. And it struck me really forcefully... Uh, when I read it, for that reason, for the author to have imaginatively projected himself into early humans who didn't have language mm -hmm. and who lived in an utterly dissimilar way um, seemed to me an extraordinary feat. And as well as focusing specifically on this set of characters, it seems to also take in a, a whole age, that sort of turning point where I needn't have picked that particular book I might have picked another book by Golding and this is my thing about authors being more important than individual books um, I think of Golding as a really fascinating writer because he seems to me so strange he's partly a sort of mystic and partly a rationalist scientist, he's got both things going on at the same time uh, and, and I, I find him really interesting as a result I mean, These all fit into your 
um, what you said at the beginning about the absorption of a different world. All yes. these books do. Until we get to, of course, In Search of Lost Time, which is <laughs> <laughs> a behemoth of a, a series of novels. So tell us about how you came to these books, how long it took you to read them, when you read them. This was a book I was never going to read, and I was never going to read because I, I want to read 60 books a year, as I, I said before. I can't possibly keep that up <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I read this. Uh, I have to keep reading very slim books to keep my numbers up. Uh, but a friend of mine said he was going to read it. I thought about it and I, I thought, I will read it at the same time. When was that? About ten years ago. Uh, and I thought, we will be roped together like two mountaineers. <laughs> and so what we did was we would read one of the original novels and then meet in the pub and talk about it. It took the best part of a year, mm -hmm. I suppose. And I felt comfort in the fact that I was doing it with someone else. I, I was working at, at the time in Jericho and I used to go at lunchtime into the graveyard of St Sepulchre off Walton Street and I used to sit in the graveyard and read it. And af after a, a session reading it, I would take a leaf from the copper beech tree there and put it between the leaves of the book because somehow where I read it was important to me. And I think that's true of, of lots of reading. I can remember where I was when I read it. But for this book, it felt particularly important. And I think that is connected with the reason why, for me, it's, it's, it's the single greatest reading experience of my life. Because it really did change my view of the world around me. I thought it was the most generous book I'd ever read because it made me see the world as a much richer place. I came away from the book thinking the world was more full of stuff mm. than I had realised. I was newly sensitised to things in the world. Mm. And it's because of his, his extraordinary descriptions of, of things and emotions and the way in which he can find so much in it. It's as if... He could walk down Norris Avenue and he could, he could stop and describe a lamppost. And it wouldn't just be a lamppost. It would be a history of traffic in the street. There would be scratches on it. There would be posters stuck to it. There would be a dent in it where the, a car hit it once. There would be, you know, the third generation of lights in the, in the light bit of the, of the street lamp. Um, implying the previous lamps that had been there. And Proust would, would see the whole history of the street lamp and, and it made me go out and look at the world and realise that I was seeing it really superficially. And for a, for a while, I thought, I can see more in the world. It wore off. <laughs> and I went, I went back to looking at it in the most superficial way possible. Yeah. So that was one reason. Um, I think also it was a challenge. I think that's important. I, I wrote about In Search of Lost Time in The Rough Guide. Mm. And, you know, I began by saying it's not quick, it's not short, and it's not easy. You're not going to whiz through it. You, you're going to have to take your time, partly because you might have to reread sentences mm. and you might lose where you are. But if you put the work in, you will, you will get an enormous amount out of it. Mm. That was my view uh, when I was writing about it in the Rough Guide. And I, that's what I felt for myself. It's a world, frankly, which... I'm not really interested in. If I think about the Lord of the Rings, I was interested in that world. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in it. It was fun. 
I, I, I didn't find the world of In Search of Lost Time fun. It's full of all these people I'm sure I would have hated to meet in real life. What I like about the book is the way in which he describes it. So he's like Dickens or Raymond Chandler or someone who can bring to life something through the way they, they describe it and make the thing itself much more rich, mm. richer in the book and also richer in real life when you think about it. Have any of the other books had any impact, do you think, on the way that you see story and the way you construct it yourself? I think as I get older, the books I read have less and less impact on my writing, but I think I am, um, at the same time, strongly imitative. And when, when I'm excited as a reader, there is part of me that thinks, ooh, could I, could I do this as a writer, or could I learn from this as a writer in, in some way? I think you know my own writing style and writing voice is the result of just hundreds, thousands of encounters with books mm. over the years. The creation of any imaginative world is in itself a, a sort of prompt for me to want to want to write, mm. to want to create the same sort of thing. Finally, can we talk about what you're working on now? Tell me about Demon Voices, a book of essays by Philip Pullman. Well, it's, it's been... Uh, it, I, I was fortunate enough to be asked to um, put together uh, Philip's essays, and, and all the essays are on storytelling quite a lot of them are on reading um, and it's been an absolutely fascinating and eye-opening experience. He's an extraordinarily thoughtful man and quite brilliant reader at the same time as has been a wonderful storyteller so he, he's dealing I think with a lot of subtle things to do with books, writing and reading um, but saying them all in such an accessible way that um, anyone could read these essays and just be enthralled and entertained. I, I find what he says about the place of reading very moving. He has the notion that in, un, in free, unfettered reading, there is a sort of democracy. He calls it the democracy of reading. The sort of reading that doesn't happen in a theocratic state where you, you read a religious text and you have to read it in a certain sort of way. Um, the sort of reading, on the contrary, that happens when we're not directed, where we can have that private experience that I was talking about. Um, it seems to him, and it seems to me as well, that it's a central experience, a, a central human experience, and incredibly valuable in that it's one of the ways we learn empathy. We read about other people in the characters of novels and we re read about what they do and we learn in, a, in a, an indirect way about right and wrong and, and codes of conduct and, and, and people's feelings and how they react to certain things. And we build up a knowledge which enables us to live with ourselves, with other people, and with other life forms in the world. Ultimately, that is our purpose here, and that, that's our moral purpose as well, to discover how to do that constructively and successfully. And reading can really be at the heart of that process. I, I agree with him. I, I think reading then becomes not just pleasurable, but incredibly important. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you for being a guest on our show today. You are welcome.
The On Reading podcast is produced by Will, Clermontine and Bennett. For more information about the podcast, our guests and the books we've talked about, please visit onreading.co.uk.